Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You've reached the Murder Between Friends podcast with Sherilyn Dale and Gavin Fish. Please stay on the line. This week's episode starts in three, two, one. Gavin, you are my new co-host. Here I am. I'm honored. I'm so pumped. I'm honored. I'm honored that you are here. I love, um, I think we've got some like really fun stuff for everybody to watch. Very much in the the opposite attracts, you know, category. Yet we're still very similar um, because, you yeah. know, I watch all the true crime shows for us. You do not. I have that is more. true. Datelines saved than my PBR can handle. I drink for the two of us. Yeah. You do no, not. but we just clicked when we got together in Minnesota looking at the David Elmquist case. We just clicked. And it's really funny to look at the photos that were taken of us. We are. We're completely opposite people, but we've got the same goals when it comes to solving crimes, don't we? Amen. And I think, um, yeah, that that's definitely what attracted me to this partnership. And yeah, like you said, it was just like instant connection that, you know, that that chemistry is there. And at the end of the day, our end goal is exactly the same and all of that matters. So I am so excited to see, you know, where this adventure takes us. I'm so honored to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting in, me. In, in me and and the podcast, of course. Um, that being said, we we are not messing around. We have already pre-filmed our first episode and it was a gooder. We were honored to have some pretty big names, two huge victim and survivor advocates, Tara Newell and Collier Landry on. And um, I mean, if this episode is just a taste of what's to come, like I can't wait. Yeah, these guys are amazing. Uh, they're terrific advocates for victims of violent crime because they have been there themselves. So yeah, it's a great episode. Amen. Without further ado, you guys, here is our first episode back with Murder Between Friends with Gavin Fish and Sherilyn Dale and our special guests, Tara Newell and Collier Landry. What I recently spoke with, um, I don't know if you know of Stacy Peterson. She was married to Drew Peterson and he, her body is still not found. He was a cop and had already killed another wife of his and she knew about it and then all of, all of a sudden she went missing and... Um, anyways, there was a Lifetime movie done there, like Rob Lowe played him and Kaylee Cuoco and 
So I think, like, right now, her sister is still actually trying to find her. And I th- she doesn't have the resources to get the the sonar dive equipment that she needs okay. because she's in the ocean or in a, um, what would you call it? A, no, a like, deep um, body of water. Yeah, like, it's like a... What a, a, what a, a canyon body of, of sort. Water. Yeah, like, yeah. It's water. Not like yeah, yeah. So she kind of knows where she is, but doesn't have the resources. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, they've done like a lifetime movie. What happens at that point? You know, when they pr- approach you to do a lifetime movie of your life, your family, do you sign over these rights and now you have no you know, like nothing to it? Or do they help with like the victims, families going forward? I've, I'm very curious about it. So I was lucky in a sense of like that I was involved okay. because I'm finding out that a lot of victims and survivors aren't involved in a lot of their stories. Right. So I was lucky in that sense. However, I, sh- I deserve more money than I got compensated for um you know it's a scripted series and then like the podcast I never got any money for that I just got money for the scripted series and the documentary with oxygen that got made and then I'm finding out that it's really like with talking to other true crime survivors That there's, like, really a hit or miss. Some people get, like, a good dollar amount. Some people get, like, a mid-dollar amount. Some people get, like, low-dollar amount. And some people get nothing. Wow. So it's really, like, all into the spectrum. And I was somewhere, like, kind of in the middle, we'll say. And um, there's a lot of people, like, the Jeffrey Dahmer series and, you know, um, I've Ryan Murphy, that's his name. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Murphy, he's not getting consent of the victims and the families that have been traumatized by this real trauma. And to other people, and, you know, I worked in the media. I've done background. I've done stand-in positions. I thought it would be fun to be an actor at one point. Never, like, did that acting, you know? Mm-hmm. But I worked in the industry, and my ex was a PA, and did stuff with cameras and whatnot and I've been in the industry now but it's crazy that like when you see the media and everything you're so like you're so shocked and you're so like glamorized this like thing is so glamorized in a sense yeah and so you're just looking at do you mean the finished product well like do you mean the finished product when you look at the actual show like when you look at any series, you know it's glamorized. It's yeah, like when you're the, watching the, the they make the the story as a whole like this, like you say, Gavin, murder porn, and people are like desensitized to it because it's become this non-reality almost. You know where like the O.J. Simpson story is cool in a sense, and I, you know, a lot of people think differently about that for sure, but there are the people that are like, oh, wow, he got away with murder. That's crazy. And there are people that are legit upset about it, like the sister, you know, Nicole's sister. And, you know, there's real people involved. Yeah. And Collier works in the industry, so... You know, he even knows a lot more about this, too, because he's worked in it for a long time. He's a DP, and he, like, told his story after the fact that he's worked in the industry for a while. Right. I saw um, your documentary. It was 
so beautiful. I oh, actually I had a question about um, it when you were putting it together and watching like little Collier. <laughs> Did you just want to put you in your pocket? Like how was that to like differentiate from like who you are today to watching you on the stand then? So um, what I would say was probably the most interesting thing for me was, so I'm sitting in the theater in New York on our, when we first, um, for our uh, world premiere, like US world premiere. And um, I'm watching this, <laughs> I'm watching this kid on the witness stand going, huh, why is like this kid like, this is me. Like, this right. is still me. I'm just a little bit older. I'm the same snarky, sarcastic, my same snarky, sarcastic self. I mean, so much of this. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Um, so that's what it was for me. Okay, I love it. So um, I guess what I'd really like to do, and I think this is going to help Gavin as well, because Collier, before you got on, Gavin was just kind of um, letting Tara know that true crime is definitely not his wheelhouse in like the traditional sense of somebody having like any interest in it. Um, he really wants to um, solve, you know, as many cases as he can and advocate for families and survivors and stuff like that. So it's definitely, you know, the same vibe that you guys have and, and where I want to be in terms of helping victims but so for somebody like Gavin who would not be you know on top of all of the true crime stories whoever wants to start I want to know from both of you but can you guys kind of give us a little insight of like why you guys are here you know in your position in life right now what brought you here sure why don't we start with Collier since your for story was first well um it's interesting because I think this is very common for both Tara and myself, which is, you know, we didn't, we didn't ask to be a part of this. Like we didn't ask to be a, a subject of a true crime series, right? We got sort of forced into this situation. And I think that for me, I, it, it was this sort of, I needed to do something with my story. I needed to do something with my mother's story, I needed to honor her because I was very, I was very sort of, I wouldn't say obsessed, but I was, I guess maybe obsessed, not obsessed, but I, I, I was very sensitive to the fact that after what happened to my mother, after what happened to me, that I, I saw how people reacted to, to the consumption of the case whether it be in my own town, whether it be people I would meet in the state of Ohio in our travel, whatever it was. And that was, you know, everybody is very immersed in the drama of the bad guy, the crime, the, like the perpetrator, the crime, you know, what happened to the victim. And there's this weird sort of thing that seemed to shift where as soon as the gavel hit and we said, next, right, that it ended up being this whole other, just, it, it was like out of sight, out of mind. And we never really examined the consequences of violence. We never examined how, when we were, you know, it, it just essentially just stopped right with that, right? You know, we, we were fascinated up until a certain point, then the gavel hits, it's like the bad guy goes to jail, the state gets his restitution, the gavel hits and we say next. And we don't ever, 
look at, examine the consequences of violence on family, not only on families and victims, right, but the ancillary victims, like the people who were like the best friend of the victim, the kids' schoolmates at class at school when this happened, the community as a whole, the prosecutor, the, their family, the 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 police department, the detectives, the, this, that. We don't look at the, and the ramification on the community, the ripple effects of violence. And that is only, in my opinion, become something that has been sort of of the moment, fashionable, whatever you want to call it, apropos, be, recently. Like I would say in the last like 10 years, we've become really like, oh, what happened? What are the real, you know, and now everybody's, and I wouldn't call it like wokeism or anything like that, but I would call it like, oh, everybody's like, now we're super, we're hyper aware that, oh, these bad things have consequences that are far reaching outside of the scope of just the crime, the bad guy, the victim, you, you know what I mean? Because we're seeing these ripple effects and and how it affects communities. Like, and, and you can take that, you know, into recent things like the Las Vegas shooting, right? And how that impacted a community there. Uh, you can take, you can look at, uh, you know, the murder of Michael Brown, right? And the community of Ferguson, right? And the, and the rise of the, ultimately the Black Lives Matter movement. The, the wake of the victims of Harvey Weinstein, just to use things that are off of topic, right? You know, a uh, top of mind for us recently, right? Unfortunately, you know, you have, um, uh, um, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and then the recent conviction of, of Ghislaine Maxwell. And in these things like, oh, we're, we're really aware of those. And so now we're, we're looking at those like, oh, so this is what happened to the victims of being sex trafficked trafficked, for example. This is what happened to the family, you know, of, of an activist's, you know, an activist's son was lynched in a tree, for example, right? You know, all these things that, that, are, that are far reaching into communities and that contribute to, I wouldn't say an error of distrust, but I would say that when we now talk about, and this is just a jump ahead, but when you talk about ethical true crime, you, you, you have these, these things where people are examining these stories and they're not looking at the full scope of them. And then that ultimately affects people because it plays upon their distrust of the personal, whether it be the system that they're involved in or, or whatnot. And then you look at that, those, those ramifications then leading into things like incarceration reform, right? Prison reform. Like I was on the, I was on an interview earlier today with an inmate who's been, who has been, convicted rightfully of murder since he was the age of 17. So even discussing like how those things impact communities that lead to people to have, if you don't have a proclivity towards violence, you will gravitate towards it because there's nothing else, right? Or you, you get involved in, in the wrong situation. That's, That's really wild that you're answer. saying this because Gavin really just did answer. this today too. No, I love that. Yeah. Gavin literally just had this same day as you and we just had this conversation about, you know, like systematic justice and, and, and situations. That's wild. Colliers, how old were you when, when it all happened? Yeah, so I was 11 years old when it, when it happened, when I witnessed the murder happen. And I was 12 when it went to trial when I testified. So I remember like when I was in sixth grade, I had a classmate whose mom died like expectedly. She was ill, right? But the effects that that had on him, uh, act, actually, you know, he, he, I remember he beat up a teacher at our school because he wanted to leave and the teacher oh. didn't want him to leave. He just needed to leave, right? 
And and then sure. here I am, however many years later, 35 years later, I, that still affects me, the whole idea that you have to allow somebody who is grieving to grieve, right? So everything that you're saying right there is, uh, like, I, I completely identify with it. My question to you is, when, when you're in fifth and sixth grade and you're dealing with the murder of your mom, you know, what does that look like in your daily life? You still had to go to school, right? You still had to live. What did that look like? Well, I mean, the first part of that was when, you know, the 25 plus days of when my mother was missing, right? So school became a place for me to safely talk to detectives about what was going on, whether it be an observance of my father's behavior, whether it be ultimately when I found the photographs of the house and his mistress in front of the fireplace that was wrapped in plastic, which is ultimately where they dug my mother's body up from underneath that house that he purchased in another state. So there were lots of things that were going on in that particular situation where it had nothing to do with school. It had to do with being safe, if that makes sense. So I had that sort of situation. And then obviously her body is found. My father is arrested. I testify at the grand jury. And then because of that testimony at the grand jury, I am then orphaned by my family. Father's side of the family wants nothing to do with me. You're putting your father in prison. Mother's side of the family says, I want, we want nothing to do with you because you look like your father, which I don't. But th that was their way of coping with it. And look, people cope with trauma in all sorts of ways. It doesn't necessarily mean it makes any sense or it's right or it's fair, but the world is not fair, right? Then I had to sort of <laughs> go through that process and because of my mother's role in not only the school, but the community, my mother had a lot of friends. And those friends that were my friends were also loved my mother. So then I not only had to deal with my own sort of grief, but I found myself in a position as a kid where I was, um, where I was essentially, um, you know, finding myself helping others grieve, right? And so there's a little bit of that common ground in it, in a sense, because there, you know, you end up with yourself trying to process everything. You then end up going through your grief while helping others cope with the same grief, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think also because you are like very, like as a young child, you were an old soul. That's what I grabbed from you, you know, like hearing your testimony and stuff. So that's, you know, if I were to say, okay, well that without knowing you and just seeing that on, on interviews and stuff like that, that sounds right. Because it's almost like you had this like nurturing side of you anyways. And I think that that was also like you sub, you know, like not even knowing that you were also that for your mom, right? Because like your mom and you were so close and she wasn't with your father. So, you know, that's actually really interesting that you kind of took on that role after of just being this like caretaker at such a young age. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, caretaker essentially of myself. Right. Right. And I guess, and I guess, you know, but others, looking out for others, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think, but that also I think is part of your, of, you know, I think when you are sort of in a situation where you are, you know, you are grieving something that is so severe you know, it almost helps to, it, it helps to have something that distracts you, right? And I did a TED talk about this, where I talked about like, you know, approaching trauma in a way where you 
like being either of service or being of action really is what ultimately is what ends up leading you through that trauma, right? So you ultimately have this whole, you, you're on your, this journey yourself, right? And then, you know, you sort of bring the other people with you in a way, but at the same time, you, uh, you, you are, you're still coping. It's, it's all about you. You're coping with it yourself too, if that makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> How was it about like, and I want to, I want to get to Tara too, like, but you talked about at school, you met with detectives and you had to go to the grand jury. You had to testify in court. That means that as a kid that's having to grow up really fast, you're just around a bunch of adults all day that are kind of shuttling you to and from and trying to get information out of you and direct you and all that stuff. How, how was that? I guess what would be your advice to people who might be in the same situation, maybe not necessarily as children, but having to deal with the the mechanics of of finding some type of uh, what we call justice, but I don't think really is. But, you know, in this justice system, what's your advice to people that are going through that dealing with the detectives and the prosecutors and you know, everybody involved? Well, <laughs> it's challenging for certain. But I think for me, I was so laser focused on getting justice for my mother that nothing else really mattered. And I couldn't really sit and think about how bad my life was or what was going on um, to a certain degree, because at the same, like, then I was like, okay, if I start thinking about that, then it's probably over. <laughs> right. Mm. So I think that it's, it was just a very focused, I'm in action sort of thing, you know, moving forward, moving past it. What's next? What now? What am I doing? And, and, and leading through that action, right? I think for everyone, it's all, you know, it's all sort of subjective. You are, it, it depends on what you're doing and, and where you are at your life. Like you talked about me being carted back and forth with adults, right? So I was, for the most part, just raised, you know, by my mother. So I was constantly treated not only like an adult, but I was around adults in adult situations, which is not necessarily the, you know, the most ideal situation sometimes for people. But for me, it worked because I approached the situation as an adult as part of sort of this whole, I, mean, I can't remember what the term is in psychology or child psychology, but essentially it's like being dropped off a cliff onto a mattress and then how far you spring back on that mattress depends on if you land in like your, you know, your, your, uh, whatever, your, your, your fight or flight, you know, it, I can know if that's your cerebral cortex or what, but, you know, or you, or you land more in your limbic system or you, or you land more in your, in your frontal cortex where you're thinking and you're of action, and you're preparing and I'm not a brain expert, but those systems where you're, you're, you understand what's going on and you're trying to, you're like, I, I will cope with this once I'm done with this. That's what you have to sort of find. And it's, it's like, that's like, you know, I mean, that's that there's the rub, right? <laughs> you, you know, like, yeah. how do you, like, how do you really, you know, you just sort of go through it. I mean, you, we have Tara here. And Tara was attacked by a man who had the intent of killing her, right? 
yeah. you know and so you have that and you, you have some, so it's like how do you even like i when i talk to her i probably like how does that come off like hey i'm gonna do this i'm gonna focus you know and survive yeah tara tara tell us about your experience yeah so i mean for me it was crazy because i kind of got thrown into it of the sense like my mom met a psychopath and then he came and terrorized our family in that sense and then so i got thrown into it just by my mom and so that was an interesting thing to get thrown into your parent who's supposed to be like your protective figure and whatnot and then i ended up getting attacked by this male and uh, you know my body goes into fight or flight mode and i have to fight for my life because my body was already preparing for this because i was being stalked and when you're being stalked you're already being hunted you know and so that person that predator is going to go get his prey soon so me as the prey was already feeling that there's a predator around me and so my system was already on guard you know and my amygdala was hyperactive you know the prefrontal cortex of the brain that collier was talking about and so it's just crazy that you get thrown into this situation and then i ended up having to fight my stepdad in the parking lot he brought the knife i actually was able to get the knife from him my dog was with me in the attack and then i defended myself and then it was crazy because afterwards like you're in you're in shock and i definitely agree with collier about you know after everything happens after like the for me, it's so different because I am alive here today, but there are people still grieving in my situation, even though that person was a bad man and that person was the person trying to attack me. And there's still grief, but I still had to appease to these people who were grieving because I was the person that killed him in a sense. And so I didn't want people to be mad at me for what I had to do in that situation. And then, you know, brings us on this journey where I felt like I had to speak up to take my narrative back. But of course, I had to like grieve for a while. And then the LA Times approached me, did this huge story. And then so I really became an advocate for these victims. And then, you know, leading into doing all these interviews i met collier on his podcast a murder um or moving past murder <laughs> and he has the documentary uh, murder in mansfield but i met him on his podcast and then that's how we actually connected because we really aligned with what happened to us and you know the ethics of true crime and all that I wanted to know that how you guys, how you guys had like connected. So it was an interview that you did, and then you you jived. Yeah, and then and, you know, and I and I had said to you know I I was <clears throat> as someone who, again, I set out to make a film about the consequences of violence, the murder of my mother, leading through trauma, focusing on these things, and then ultimately towards my own journey of healing. Right. I never set out to make a true crime film. So when I started doing my podcast last year, 2021, 
I, you know, was just sort of telling my story, interviewing other people, sometimes weighing in on sort of cases or, you know, um, from other people's perspective, from like my perspective, right? And unique perspective of a true crime survivor, right? But I didn't ever set out to like make a true crime podcast. I just threw it in that category because it is true crime, right? Um, but then I started interviewing people like Tara. When I interviewed Tara, I just became so acutely aware of like, oh, wow. These victims are really exploited for their stories. And and what a unique thing it was for me to be able to control my narrative from Jump Street, essentially. You know, I my whole journey was I moved to Los Angeles to become a filmmaker, right? Or, you know, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to tell the story, right? <clears throat> There's not a lot of people that do that. But on the flip side, there are many people who... Uh, who find themselves in these situations? They're they're victimized, or they're, uh, you know, they they are a victim themselves, or they're a survivor, or whatever. And then it just takes on a life of its own through now, especially social media, TikTok, things of that nature. But then you know the media and the traditional forms of media, not the new media forms. You know, traditional media, Dateline, uh, you know, twenty twenty, um, you know, forensic files, uh, you know, uh, unsolved mysteries, whatever, what have you, right? And then it becomes a movie and a TV series on Lifetime and this, that, and the other. And it becomes, it takes on this life of its own, sort of multi-headed, you know, tetra-headed hydra. And you're just like, whoa, okay. And you um, you realize the level of the exploitation and you just go, okay, something needs to be, they need to talk about this a little more, you know? And that's yeah. how we sort of land on this ethical yeah. true crime thing and, yeah. you know, with Survivor Squad. I love it. I think it's so awesome that that's the focus and that you you truly want to use your platform to raise that and, and hold people accountable and Gavin and I both said you know like not that we've been perfect angels in our journey in terms of having you know like true crime content but that's very much like where our focus is in terms of victims and helping and um, raising this question because you can you know have the best of intentions as much as you want but not everybody does and when you start like you know now that I've stepped back and really looked at like what's out there I mean it's yeah, it's, it makes me really angry, actually. Like, I feel like if you've got a platform, why why aren't you using it to have these conversations and hold people accountable and yourself accountable, you know? Like, to to do better and to lift voices like yours up, you know? or And, and that's exactly what you guys are doing on your, your podcast. I mean, you guys are victims yourselves, what? essentially, but want to raise other people up. Well, and we're also letting survivors tell their yeah. tell their story in their own words, right. which is very rare. It's almost it's always someone else is telling the narrative. Someone else is doing this, and that's what makes our podcast unique. Because not only have we both been through these things, but we also are able to connect with a with a fellow survivor and go, okay, we, we you know we we've earned our stripes too, and we're going to let you tell it in your own words. And we are able to get certain things out of people that people can also get out of us that we only talk about amongst ourselves. We don't talk, I don't, there are certain things that I only tell certain survivors yeah. and people that I'm comfortable with and like my sort of like fam that I would, that I would never tell an interviewer or I would never describe it in the way of the sort of detail or even laugh about it in a way, you know? And I think also part of it is too, is, is it's interesting because these, these things like these podcasts and these channels and these, these companies, they make exorbitant amounts of money off of other people's misery. And then, you know, I find myself often, you know, there was a, a time when I started going viral on TikTok and people were excoriating me saying, oh, you're profiting off your mother's murder. I'm like, well, first of all, Ooh. like I'm making no money. 
you know, a podcast doesn't have any, you know, it's not like the podcast has, you know, advertisers or anything. I'm doing it to spread awareness and raise awareness. But also, like, this happened to me. And if I, if the police handled it as their missing persons case and I wasn't this mouthy, obnoxious little kid who convinced one detective to listen to him that his mother was actually murdered, my father would have gotten away with it. So it is very, um, it is very much my, I am, I am allowed to speak with absolute authority in this position. And I'm able to tell the story because I'm the survivor and I'm the one that this happened to. And by the way, my father tried to take my life twice. <laughs> so let's free, let's not forget that, you know? Right. And in the grand scheme of things, I mean, like when people say that, I mean, it's just, oh, yeah, keyboard warriors are another topic, but <laughs> you know, like if, if it, if you were well, it's really the navigation given the of power, choice, social relationships, but yeah. The power of social relationships, yeah. Right. And to, what what would you, you know, like, oh, I'd rather profit off of my mom's death. No, like, I'd I'd rather have my mom here. But this is the the, the cards that I was dealt, you know? I mean, oh, that just. (laughs) One of the cases that was one of my first cases looking into, uh, you know, doing a a YouTube channel was a case called Amanda Winkowski. The victim was named Amanda Winkowski. And um, she, she was somebody who uh was obviously murdered but the system decided that it was better to be an overdose i mean she was found upside down frozen solid naked in a garbage can outside of the home of a rapist and they called that an overdose so i um i started digging into everything and i was able to prove to the da that the toxicology report proves that she did not overdose. The metabolites that you would expect to find in there are absent, right? So we got a little um, got a little attention from a giant production company, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> but uh, after a year of working with them to try, Tara, something you were saying before we really started, you know. I, a year of working with them to try to get that project off the ground. I was at the gym one morning listening to a playlist of the Beatles and I hear Paul McCartney saying, you never give me your money, only give me your funny papers. I sat there and I was like, why am I, why am I working so hard for this company that is going, that is working to make millions of dollars off of this family. And that was the moment that I realized I am, I I'm a participant in exactly what I don't want to participate in, (laughs) right? Yeah, I, well, I think, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier that, you know, when you're working in the media, it's all fun, it's exciting, and you don't really get that these people, it's actually like stories, actual traumas that are being exploited, and you don't get it until you're really in that person's shoes. And, you know, I've worked a little bit in media and, you know, Collier's worked a lot in media before he even told his story, but I was so excited, you know, all these, even we had like Amanda Knox on our podcast, she's going to be in one of the episodes and I was so excited to see her story and realizing that was me in high school, excited to see the story and then meeting this person and going through a trauma myself I'm like I can't believe I even thought that I can't believe I was even excited because 
Hayden Panettiere was playing her, and I was like, oh, bring it on to or what, I don't know, but she was in a lot of different movies during that time of my life, and so that made it so exciting to go watch Amanda Knox's story, who, you know, they Amanda didn't have anything really to do with that movie, and so it's just crazy that, you know, you see something, you get so excited about it, but you forget that there's a real person attached to it. Yeah, that's so well said. And that's what I love that you do that on your on your your podcast, but a, a lot on your, you know, t- TikTok too. You definitely like take advantage of that true crime hashtag where you're forcing people to 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 think about those things, you know, like didn't, a, a sound bite of yours was used, wasn't it? Oh um, yeah. It <laughs> went like pretty viral. What was that one, Tara? I didn't even look into it cuz I didn't even want to give it like traction. Thank you. Well, thank you for not looking into it and not giving it traction. But it was so, you know, knowing me and there's been time apart from my story and apart from my trauma, I just wanted to go on TikTok and start to tell my narrative. And it was funny because Collier was like, I got the idea from Collier because he went on and started to tell his story. But I was like, how can I do my story? And I wanted to do it in different sequences. And so I hate to say it like this, but I wasn't even thinking it as like a soundbite that's like going to get clickbait or anything. I was just like, I'm going to go on and start to tell my story. So that just started me by introducing my name and being like, hi, I'm Tara. I killed my stepdad in self-defense. And I wore a Harley Quinn t-shirt and the Harley Quinn t-shirt said Daddy's Little Monster. And I didn't really think that through. And so just me saying that with that t-shirt, like, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I laugh a little bit about it. But, like, you have to understand that there's trauma attached to that. There's a real story attached to it. And it can't be joked about. And, like, this person, like, when the you know, when a client overshares or like when you meet someone and they just like overshare, you cannot like think about it that way or do a joke about it that way. If you do repost it, like repost it in the sense like, hey, you need to check out the story or hey, there's a little bit more to this, you know, something like that. I appreciate those reposts. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. 100%. We try to be very careful now with wardrobe and tech talk. Yeah. No more Harley Quinn shirts. No more Harley Quinn shirts. No. You guys just get on Zoom right before you go on. Like, am I good to record now? How how do I look? Yeah. Yeah. Tie-dye is okay, right? Blue? Okay. We're ready. Color, I had a question for you from something you said earlier. Um, Do you think you got justice for your mom? Oh, 100%. No question. 100%. Yeah. You know, I think that after, you know, I think after getting the, the, you know, the, the justice in the traditional sense of the word, then it was more so getting the re- the recognition and getting the story out there in a way that it gets people talking about, again, consequences of violence, ramifications of violence, you know, that ultimately became the real process, right? <clears throat> the the justice sort of thing was, I mean, not, not that it was easy, because none of it was easy. It was excruciating. But I would say that the 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 longer form 
the long play of all this was not the justice was pretty swift. The it's the making something positive out of it that took that takes the longest. It is the more arduous of all of this, and is really the most intensive because everything else seems to happen pretty quickly. But I want to go back to your point that you were talking about the case that you were examining that you had brought up and you had said to the investigators, you know, one of the interesting things is, and this is, this is like this double-edged sword of, of the, the scales of lady justice, if you will, you have people that demand very swift justice in these cases, or you have people who like, we've got to find a perpetrator, right? Okay. Somebody did this. We got it. And there's this rush. And then, you know, there's the flip side of where then you have to do like proper detective work, proper police work, or you, know, you have something like a missing persons case and people go, well, the police didn't do anything about it. And, it, and it's, yes, that is a fact that the police didn't do anything about it, but why didn't they do anything about it? Oh, I don't know, because there's dozens of these cases that occur every day. So if it, the, the, the level of sort of advocacy that a police officer can do really until a detective gets a case is something that is is a lot more of a complicated process than one would think it's not like okay they've got this they've got a great lead they're going to go hunt this down it's like there's so unfortunately the way the world works is there's so many of these cases like let's just take my mother's my mother's disappearance right so it's a missing persons case and unless this one detective believes me that my mother was murdered it's going to be handled as such well we all know that it wasn't a missing persons case Right. But that is such a common thing. And let's keep it real. Like, it's not a common thing with like people like myself. It's a common thing with mostly women. Marginalized. That, you know, there's a, folks, some sort yeah. of domestic or uh, women, marginalized folks and from marginalized communities, you know, uh, mm -hmm. impoverished communities. I mean, where domestic violence is far more prevalent. Right. Or at least more known to be prevalent. Right. You know, so you have these things of. You have these situations where, you know, if I'm not an advocate for or this annoying little kid, then the right eyes don't get focused on it. But again, these cases will often disappear into the shadows of yet another case. And really, the thing that I look at is is that isn't a failure of law enforcement. That is a failure of society as a whole. Right. Because we have become tolerant of abuse. We have become tolerant of these situations or we've become immune to them. Maybe is the better word, not tolerant, like but Like socially acceptable too. Yeah. It, it, well, sometimes we'll even blame the victim, right? Well, sure. Well, that occurs later, but I think, but, but I think initially you get into these situations where you're looking at them through a lens of, you know, uh, well, yeah, of course it's happening again. Of course it's happening again. There's nothing I can do. And I think when you continue to have these conversations and bring this up, this is why, you know, we were discussing with a fellow true crime advocate and, and podcaster, like, so, you know, I feel like sometimes I overshare my story. And she goes, no, she's like, I share my story every day. And this is why, because you never knew who it's going to impact. And then it's going to be like, and I'm like, that's a great point. You can't really overshare it because if it reaches the right person at the right time, you might be able to make a real difference, whether that's the difference in taking someone's life, whether that's a difference in someone taking the right steps to find the loved one or, or whatever that is. Right. You know, and you know, then again, to your point, you have this situation where, um, you know, on the flip side, you have people that are, that do the victim shaming the victim blaming. 
self-blaming. Oh, well, this person put themselves in these situations. Oh, this person stayed right. in the marriage because of this. Oh, this person. And it's like, it's not that simple, you know? And again, when I was mentioning talking to the, uh, the, the incarcerated individual today, you know, what I'm fascinated in is like, what led to that, right? Oh, okay. Oh, so you came from a broken home. Oh, your mom was an alcoholic, left you when you were a baby. Oh, okay. Your father was also an alcoholic because of the community that you grew up in. Alcoholism is rampant in that particular community. Okay, so these are things you weren't afforded these opportunities or a, a life that's normalcy. And then, of course, you got strung out on drugs and then you committed this murder. And now you've been incarcerated for 35 years and this all happened before the age of 17. Okay, got it. And I think that when we start to think about these things, and it's not having compassion, it's not, it's, not, it's not only about having compassion or empathy or understanding, but it's not like, oh, you're feeling sorry for them, or you're somehow acknowledging that what they've done is acceptable. It's not that, you know, it's, it's that you need to understand these situations that cause these things in the first place. That's why having these conversations makes us think like, what are we doing? Like, let's not start at they're in, in prison. Let's start at they're a kid, right? Yeah, they're where the kid. fracture was starting. Where the fracture, like, yeah. like, like if we start thinking about that. Yeah, I love that. Then yes. we won't have this. Right, right. That's, that's so powerful. Now is that, because I want to ask about your guys's workshop. I'm so like, I, I that was like one thing I said to Tara, I'm like, this is so awesome. So is that kind of also, the the hope too is like not just for um in advice in terms of toxic dating but you know like figuring out you know like having people aware i guess of like who you're being with or whatever and, and thinking about those things and where they came from also like i want to know more about the workshop well i wouldn't say it's it's just be it's like toxic dating it's also like we're, we're also offering a trauma workshop right and right. trauma recovery and speaking right. about our personal experiences on on those things i think for people that are interested in the workshops they are people that come to us that have already seen what we've been doing and they're like we want to know more and you know you know tara and i have gajillions of people that reach out to us that's a real number gajillions uh gajillions of people that reach out to us on social media or via email or whatever and context asking us for advice or um uh, you know like what is this and that this is that type of thing it's that type of situation where people can come to us and have like a one-on-one -on -one or or in a group setting where we can we can share sort of the the cheat codes if you will of like this is what we we've done and we're not therapists we're not we're not counselors, we're nothing, we're not mental health professionals. All but we are suggesting is like, this is what we went through. And look, your father didn't murder your mother, you didn't for you weren't faced with a situation where your stepfather was trying to kill you who was high on drugs, and you had to defend yourself. We're not looking for people those those extreme, I mean, I'm sure there are people but we're that's not the normal thing. But people who are also struggling with maybe they were involved with a narcissist, maybe they're in a bad relationship, maybe they had a bad relationship with a parent, maybe they had this how did they can glean things from us that uh, that they wouldn't get from other people because our our circumstances are so extreme that that's what that offers them. I'm gonna let Tara yes. weigh in, and, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna weigh in because okay, so this is the fourth time that I've been doing this workshop, but this time I'm adding in Collier to it because he is a male. He's been through this great journey of transformation he's done the work to get to a great place in his life and has great coping skills all this stuff and i've really done a lot of research in my own healing journey 
I've done things that work for me, things that haven't worked for me. We're going to share them all. Each week, you're going to learn about like different things. But each week, there's going to be a live call with us. And then that's when you're going to be able to ask us questions, you know, ask us about our experiences, ask our advice, anything that you want to know. That's the time to ask us. And it's really great because since this isn't my first workshop, I really got to see a lot of these people grow who have been at previous workshops. And a lot of these people are actually rejoining because they want to know Collier's experience from a male because the only thing really missing from my workshops before was that other male experience. And so that's why it's going to be even better than, you know, if you have done something with me in the past or with Collier because you get both of us. And I think that that is just amazing um, because you don't get to really, you know, you get to deal with your trauma then and you get to experts in it. And people who have come to me, they have really gone through therapy even and their therapist isn't helping them. And this is really kind of like the last resort of like, what do I need to do? I've tried everything. And it's really great because you learn about the nervous system, you learn about past relationships, you learn about attachments, you learn about a lot of stuff that you didn't know about in the past. You learn about red flags and, you know, it's just given tools and experts to help you guide through that process. Yeah. I love that. I do a series on my channel where I allow, um, viewers to or not allow they write into me and then I read all of their emails on those episodes so that they can feel like they have a platform where they're being heard so you know like I know that a lot of my my supporters are going to be very interested in this so the so there's no you know they, they don't have to have the, the, a similar story to you like Collier no. was saying you know like that was the max right so like anybody who's feeling like they just need to be heard and supported and maybe just like you said sometimes I Listen, I've been through a lot of therapy in my life and my favorite type of therapy is friend therapy. You know, that you never really get that same like, I don't know, resolve as you do when you talk to somebody who's been through a very similar situation or like you said, you know, the extreme and you're able to relate as opposed to sitting on a couch being, I don't know, nitpicked apart and this is what you should do instead, Sherilyn and... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's also why Alcoholics Anonymous exists, right? Which is like right. the largest, most successful 12-step program in the history of the world, right? Right. You know, because the alcoholics are like, nobody else can understand what I'm going through unless you're an alcoholic. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's the same thing. It's, it's, not, it's you know, y your situation might not be the same or as extreme, but you find solace in knowing like oh okay if that person i mean that's the biggest thing for me is that when people hear my story or this is a film or whatever they listen to me and i'm, I'm sure tara would would concur with this 100 percent. but they're like look if you can go through what you went through i can sure as hell deal with my daddy issues or my you know my my shit you know whatever that is right and i think that that's sort of you know that's the thing, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're all human having a human experience, but we want to really touch that with others. Yeah. And, and trauma is no trauma. Different. And trauma is trauma.
Yeah, I love that actually because I that took me a long time to learn too because I feel like it, you know, like my trauma compared to somebody else's, I'm like, oh, well, that wasn't even comparable, you know, and, and it's everybody is different, right? That And that took me a long time to, to learn that. So I like that you just said that. So the workshop, is it one-on-one? Is it, can, is it multiple people style? Like how does that work if somebody wants to register? So if you want to register, we both have links in our bio, I think, on Instagram. Also on my website, you could go straight to my website, Tara Newell Survival, and sign up there. Um, There is two workshops. One is No More Toxic Dating, and the other is uh, Moving Past Trauma. And they're both five weeks. Um, Each week, there will be a live call, an hour live call with us. And you'll get to interact even with other people. You get to ask us questions. But each week there is homework. There is, and you don't have to like complete the homework. It's not like you're going to get in trouble, you know. But there is homework, you know, if you want to actually do the work. And I think it's so important to, um, and I have like a book, like lots of books recommended. So like this is five weeks where You know, and I recommend everybody to kind of tell their friends like, hey, I'm going to be doing this workshop. I'm going to be in my healing journey. I don't really want to go out drinking and stuff. I want to, you know, don't date during that time really because you're going to be raw and you're going to be vulnerable. And if you're dating, you're going to be acceptable to those toxic people because you're in that emotional state. Wow. Yeah, that that's a really, really good point. I never even considered that. Okay, so these are great tips. I'm going to put the link to I'll go and find those so that oh, we can you. have it on this. On this I'll make sure episode. Tara emails you for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a question about uh, just something that both of you brought up. I'd love to hear you your response first, Tara, and then call her you. But um, at some point after this trauma happened for both of you, right? And uh, like, forgive me, but Tara, I think like it, forgive me for maybe characterizing this in incorrectly, but that trauma of having to defend yourself happened in a moment, right? It was momentary and, and it was almost animalistic, right? Um, but at some point you were probably interviewed by police and you had to tell them what happened, right? And the reason that I'm thinking about this is because, Collier, you brought up the detective, the one detective who believed you that this was not a missing persons. This was a murder case, right? So I, I'm curious to hear both of you maybe express to us maybe the qualities of the people that you spoke to who are the most helpful in the, I guess, in the law enforcement side of things, right? The detectives, the investigators, maybe the um, trauma, you know, counselors or whatever, who were the people as you were going through this journey within the system, who were those people that, that helped the most and how, and how was it that they were most helpful? For me, it was really interesting because we tried to get the police involved at first. We tried to get restraining orders and we weren't able to, we were told we were crazy, Oh, it sounds like you're just like, you know, in an argument with someone. Um, And we were really brushed aside. And even when John lit my mom's car on fire, uh, my high school officer actually got that case. And he went on a couple of vacations. And 
I even saw him afterwards and he felt very badly about everything and I didn't understand until I talked to my mom and talked to her that like she would call him all the time and tell him that she was in fear for her life so in that case like I feel that and I actually wrote an article I don't think it's out there anymore because um something happened with my past website but I wrote an article about Unbelievable, that series, and the difference between the cops um, who were interrogating these victims. And there was such a difference. There was a male white cop who was harsh. He didn't really believe the person. Um, he kind of brushed like what she was saying aside. She was emotional, so he, he didn't take her serious. Seriously, there was another case where this woman cop went to this girl. She pulled her aside. She was like, hey, I want to bring you to a safe area so we can talk safely. Um, I want to know, like, let you know you're safe now. You know, what do you need from me before we start asking questions? She was sensitive about the questions. She was carefully asking the questions. She was nurturing to her in the sense with boundaries. And I thought that it was great how she handled it opposed to this other person who was abrupt. He was kind of like, oh, I don't believe her. And you really get the energy and you really have to come at these victims with calm energy and like, oh, okay, I believe you. Like what happened? Tell me what happened. You know, from your own words, I'm here for you. Because what these people really need is a safe figure after something completely traumatized their lives and wrecked their lives in this sense. In in any point during like your um, statements and stuff, Tara, did you ever have somebody who was uh, like aggressive? I definitely, I had a lot of males around me. Um, they were asking me questions abruptly. Um, they told me even that my mom went to go be with her husband when really they asked her to go identify him. And so they were not kind to me. They were rude to me. They didn't handle the situation well. I did not feel safe. However, I did have my dog there and that made me feel somewhat comforted where I was able to answer these questions to them. And I knew that I wasn't going to be in trouble. I just had that feeling because I, you know, I didn't bring the knife there. I didn't, I tried to run away from him. I did everything I could to avoid that situation. I just had to do what I did because if he's on top of me, he's going to get the knife. I have right. to take the knife. I have to do what I did. Right. 100%. So it was easier for you to at least be like, you know, when, when it, the evidence is stacked up, I know that I did everything okay regardless yeah. of how you're coming at me. I think when you're innocent, you just speak with conviction. 100%. The truth is the easiest thing to remember. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the thing that people ask me about my testimony. They'd be like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're so good on the witness stand. You know, obviously you were coached. And I'm like, I'm like, no. I'm like, the reason why it's so pure it flows is because the truth is the easiest thing to remember. And when you're telling the truth, it is so pure it flows. 
And, and it, you know, it, I said, you know, I was on the witness stand for two days as a 12-year-old kid. To think that I could somehow <laughs> remember some rehearsed script is utterly fanciful. I mean, most adults couldn't remember something and testify for 15 minutes in a courtroom in such, in such a high-pressure situation, let alone a child. So, yeah, it's ridiculous, but... You know, you, you have that. <laughs> so Collier, that detective that believed you, what was it about him that made him that way? Or her, I don't, him, I don't know. Him, you know, no, Dave Messmore, I mean, he he just, I, I think that it was, it was just the perfect storm of the fact that when, you know, I pulled him aside and I said, give me your card. And then I think it was like the conviction that I had, like that that was ultimately what made him go, okay, this kid's not, this kid really believes this. And, and, and I had the evidence to back it up. That's the thing too, is that I had, you know, I had all the stories about my father's proclivity for violence, the way that he was violent towards me and my mother, the mistress, the whole thing. And that ultimately is what, you know, let him, because he went out on the limb, right? He didn't, you know, just, he it wasn't like you know like my father was a doctor in a small town in rural not rural but in, in Ohio a midwestern town small like you town don't just, yeah you know you don't just go after the doctor you know what I mean without like some sort of overwhelming avalanche of evidence and so even his captain was like we're not going after this guy you got your mind's gonna sue us and Dave was like you know but this kid like this kid, this kid I think he was convinced that I was gonna haunt him haunt his dreams if he didn't do it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is also sadly the, the, the ramifications of being <clears throat> the last child in your friend group that gets a Nintendo. So, you know, your imagination is running wild. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I guess I was hoping that would land. Maybe there was a delay. I was like, is that joke going to land? <laughs> So don't get your kids a Nintendo, guys. <laughs> you want to stay safe. <laughs> oh my gosh! Thank you guys so much. I honestly, I, uh, I, yep. I like I said. I mean, Tara. Now, when you were like, "Oh, I was excited to talk to him," and I was like, "Okay, well, I was excited to talk to you guys, just to, to as individuals, not to talk in, you know, about what happened and that there's all the movies and the documentaries, but just like what you guys have been able to do for survivors." And thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, and our podcast comes out first quarter next year, probably January. And, okay. um, you know, you guys can find us on all the socials. I have uh, at Collier Landry. We have at Survivor Squad. Tara has hers. At Tara Newell. <laughs> My podcast is called Moving Past Murder. The new one with Tara is called Survivor Squad. So we're looking forward to sharing those stories with the world. We've got a lot of great interviews lined up. Yeah, that's amazing. So we've got, we're, we'll have them. You guys will have to definitely keep me posted. I'm going to have everything linked in, in this episode anyways. But um, when you guys are, are live and ready, I'll give everybody a, a quick reminder. Yeah, and support our Patreon as we get oh, yes. live and ready. Yes, yes. we have a Patreon. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. There's guys. like lots of behind the scenes stuff on there. Yeah, there is. That's great yeah. stuff. See, I love that. I, I, that's the only reason why I think I would want to do the Patreon route is to get all that behind the scenes stuff. Yes. Right. Okay, Everybody well, smile. Now Everybody smile for the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. <laughs>